you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, it's a privilege to even get to talk to you. It's an honor to get to sing your praises because you are worthy. And God, you're shockingly gracious and merciful and loving. God, you have shown an overflowing love to every man, woman, and child in this room. You, you sent your son to die for us while we were still enemies and stubborn and rebellious. Before we were even born, you loved us. God, you're awesome. God, I pray for us as we continue to worship by looking at your word. God, I pray you'd protect us from hard hearts. God, I pray we would have soft and tender hearts towards you and your word. God, help us to be submissive to what you would say. God, I pray you help me to teach your word accurately and faithfully and mercifully and graciously. But God, I pray my teaching would be a demonstration of the, the power of your word and the filling of your spirit. So God, we, we, look, we look to you. God, I pray you would make this worthwhile. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. As you're getting seated, uh, I'm going to get ready to get started here. Uh, but I want to make one quick announcement. If you didn't get a bulletin on your way in, you're probably going to want one of those. That tells you all the stuff that's going on. We don't want to leave that up to me having to announce everything because I'll get it wrong or I'll forget it. There's one thing I want to highlight. Uh, we're having a, a voting for deacon installation for Roger Wynn. And we've been trying to think how to do that with COVID. And so what we're going to be doing is the details are there, but not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, all church members, we're going to do a, a COVID-friendly drive-up voting is what's going to happen. You can the, you'll, you'll see what's going on, but you'll drive up to this little overpass over here for a rain drop-in. So our people are watching online. We're going to set this up so it's COVID-friendly um, so that we can allow you to vote and participate in that safely. The details are in the bulletin. Uh, I'm not going to read through that because if I read the whole bulletin, then why have it? All right, so you can take that thing and check out. If you didn't get one, they're by the doors as you leave. They should be by those entrances. Okay, uh, got to be honest. I am nervous about this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you know what we're talking about. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you're going to find out very quickly what we're talking about. Um, I know I shouldn't be nervous. Um, the thing I've been preaching to myself as I get ready to preach this passage and these, these verses and what the Bible says about this, I'm, I'm reminding myself of a few things. That God's word is true and right and just and clear. And his people have his spirit. I, I am I'm putting my confidence that his word is right and I'm putting my confidence this morning that you have his spirit, that I have his spirit that will enable us to see and understand the word. I'm not putting my confidence in my natural ability or in your natural ability. Please don't be offended by that. Uh, my confidence to preach through things like this are on the word and the spirit present in you. All right? Um, I believe that God says that that's one of the things he does when he makes us his children. He fills us with the spirit that gives us hearts that want to know and love and worship him, that make us tender and obedient to him, that help us deal with sin. He, he gives us a spirit and a new heart. So uh, last week what we got into was we started talking about the topic of drinking alcohol. Uh, that's what we're going to look at this week. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Are, anybody else nervous yet or no? The giggles say yes, the head shakes say no. 
My sweaty palms say yes, so we'll figure out what that means. Now, now here's why this has come up. We are going through the book of Titus. And as we've been going through the book of Titus, one of the things that's been going on is uh, Paul is writing to this, this pastor named Titus. He's on the luxury island of Crete. And Paul has started all these churches in the villages of Crete. And he leaves Titus with instructions. Go back to those cities set up the churches, get the leadership established, and he gives a list of the qualifications of what the leaders, the elders of the church, should look like. And, and as he gave that list last week in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, there was this phrase in there. And that phrase was, not a drunkard. Um, we talked about it briefly, but I believe that this requires more attention from us because of our culture and because of who we are as a church. Now, let me explain more why I'm nervous about this. Uh, first of all, this topic, feel, this topic feels tricky because as a church, um, the history of this church is that we used to be independent fundamental Baptist, right? Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. Most people don't. This is church talk, but I'm explaining to you why this feels tricky. Uh, and then at some point, we made the shift to Southern Baptist. In both of those worlds, uh, the party line is that drinking alcohol is a sin. Um, if you're new to church, uh, that might be a surprise to you. If you grew up in church, that doesn't surprise you at all. That, so that's part of the reason why I'm nervous about this. Second reason I'm nervous about this is our personal experience. In this room and people watching online, I am positive that there's people here who have experiences that this is a very sensitive topic. Uh, maybe you have experiences with with your own personal experience with alcohol where you're a recovering alcoholic or you've recovered from, from that. You were an alcoholic before and God, by God's grace you're out of that. Maybe you grew up in a family where you had an alcoholic family and you experienced the damage of what it looks like when you're dealing with people who are addicted to alcohol. And this is a sensitive t subject. And, and, and not only that, but, but some of you, you've just had certain types of teaching pumped into your brain. And, and now I'm about to walk into this, in this room with a variety of viewpoints on it, with a different history, different experiences and hurdles and struggles. And I'm going to wade into the topic of alcohol in a Southern Baptist church in Tallahassee, Florida. That's why I'm nervous. And so here's the commitment I'm asking you to make before I wade into this topic. I'm not asking you to commit to what I say. I'm asking for this commitment. This is the commitment we're focusing on the entire time in the book of Titus. We want to look at what the word says. We're going to do our best to understand it rightly. If, it, if I get the teaching wrong, that's on me. If I, we need to have a conversation if I'm not getting it right. But we're going to look at what the Bible says. And we're going to look at what we believe and what we practice and if what we believe in practice differs from what the Bible says, we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to change it. We're going to change us. That's the commitment I'm asking you to make. So, so let me ask, are you, are you committed to be that submissive to the word this morning? Not me, the word. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a little stronger affirmation than that one. Otherwise, this is going to be really uncomfortable. Are you committed to be submissive to the what the word clearly says in this? All right, there we go. We all agreed, right? If you didn't agree, you tricked me, and that's not nice. We don't trick people in church. Now, now listen, 
uh, I'm going to lean on that commitment for us as a church. And it's that commitment, that's the reason why I'm insisting on looking at this topic. The, the reason that I want to look at this topic is, because, is not because this is the most important topic this church will ever face. The reason I want to lead into this topic is because the heart that's submitted to the word is the most important thing that this church has to be. And I'm willing to use an uncomfortable topic to cause us to lean into that. So I want you to hear my heart. The goal of this sermon is not to change your view on alcohol. The goal of this sermon is to get us to be a people who are radically committed to obey the word. That's my goal. All right, and it, listen, the Bible speaks about a whole lot more feisty things than this, okay? So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter five. I, I, and here's what I'm gonna do for the first few minutes of this. I'm gonna do an overview of what the Bible says about alcohol. If you need to write down notes in the back of the bulletin, there's a spot for that. Um, but I'm gonna go quickly, all right? So what does the Bible say about alcohol. I'm not going to go over every verse that mentions alcohol, although I've already done that in my own study going up to this. And you need to know this. Alcohol was a problem almost at the very beginning of Genesis. Like out of the gate, there was an issue with alcohol. This is not a new topic for God. Okay? It wasn't like all of a sudden God hit the 2000s and said, you know what? I really wish I would have said more about this because I, I didn't know people would have a problem with alcohol. Like, listen, in Genesis with Noah, out of the gate after the flood, there's already an alcohol issue with him. All right, this is not a surprise for God. All right, so he knew us and he, people already had a problem with this when he wrote the word. So I'm gonna show you the negative things that the Bible says about alcohol first. First, Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which is a word for, that's just wild and reckless. All right, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Instead of getting drunk and, and moved by alcohol, you need to be controlled and filled with the Spirit. Here's what that says. In case you missed that, he didn't say do not drink wine. He said do not get drunk with wine. The command here is that it seems like he's saying that the sin is when you get drunk. Do not get drunk, right? That, that's the plain meaning of that verse. I, I, I can't see it any other way. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about alcohol. Let me give you a few of the warnings that the Bible says about alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You hear warnings there? Well, the warnings that he's saying about alcohol is like, listen, it's, it'll wreck you. If, if you're deceived by it, if you're led astray by alcohol, it's going to be very easy for you to be a fool when it comes to this topic. He, another passage here, Proverbs chapter 23. This is going to be a little bit longer, but you can flip over in your Bibles to Proverbs 23 and Look at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife or conflict? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? He says this. Here's the person who has all these issues. Those who tarry long over wine, 
Those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart's utter perversity. Listen, if you're not careful with this, it's, it's going to cause you to see things and you're going to say the dumbest things you've ever said in your life if you allow yourself to be influenced by this. Verse 34, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. This is the picture of someone staggering back and forth as the waves toss the boat back and forth. This is a drunken, staggering person. Verse 35, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. This looks like the description of an alcoholic to me. And here's what he's saying in Proverbs. Alcohol, you should, there should be tons of warnings about us with alcohol. The bottom line is that alcohol is dangerous. It will lower your inhibitions and cause all sorts of problems for you. Listen, I, I wish I could say that in pastoral ministry, I have not had tons of conversations with people in their, their 20s that when they talk about huge mistakes they made, alcohol was involved a lot of the times. Listen, there's, there's just dangers for this. Proverbs chapter 31, look at this one. It says this, verse four. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, however you say this guy's name, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Why? Why would this person say, when you're in authority, you don't need to be doing this? Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and prefer, pervert the rights of the afflicted. So who's saying, listen, listen, you're a king, you're a ruler. You, you cannot allow yourself to get inebriated and, and that's going to cause you to mess up justice. You're not going to rule well if you're partying and drinking too much. That, that's what I believe he's saying here. Listen, it, I, for some reason, I don't know why this reminds me of a joke. This is probably an awful time for a joke. But, but I'm looking at that saying, listen, kings and rulers who drink are going to have a problem as they rule because it's going to cloud their judgment. So I'm sitting there looking at that, and here's what it reminded me of. I, I probably shouldn't tell this joke, but I'm going to tell you anyways. In college, I had a really good friend who was Irish, and I don't know why I would always tell this joke to him, but here was the joke. Uh, um, really bad time for a joke, but I'm going to do it. Um, I would always say, say, hey, man, why did God invent beer? He said, I don't know. And I said, so the Irish would never rule the world. That was my ongoing joke with him. Uh, it was like he invented it so that the Irish would never rule the world because you guys get that and you lose your brain, you're, you, get, you act stupid. I hope there's no Irish in here today. Um, if you are, it's a joke. I need you to relax a little. But th those verses remind me of that. Like, listen, when there's a ruler who's, who's getting drunk and allowing alcohol to cloud his judgment, it's going to be an issue. Now, I hope you hear the strong warnings about alcohol that I just read. And there's a reason why I need to read all of those warnings about alcohol. Because it's dangerous. Or I just, like, listen, you want proof that it's dangerous? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home on your TiVo. If you have TiVo, I want you to record Dr. Phil. And I want you to see how many issues people have that are circled around the abuse and addiction of alcohol. I'm telling you, like, if you don't know that it's dangerous, you, you need to grow up. You gotta grow up and you gotta know that alcohol is dangerous. Now, if that was all the Bible said about it, I could wrap up, do a prayer, and we could move on. 
Here's the problem. That's not all the Bible says about it. And the problem I have is that many times that's all that the church has said about it. Yet the Bible gives strong warnings about alcohol because God's not stupid. He's wise. He knows that it's dangerous. But it also doesn't say that drinking is a sin. It says it's dangerous. It doesn't say it's a sin. Let me give you an example. I'm going to show you some verses about this, but here's another topic that's real similar. The Bible talks about sex a lot in the Bible. It gives a lot of warnings about the abuse and mishandling of sex. It gives boundaries for sex, but it also says some really good things about what sex should be like and how it should be handled inside the marriage. It doesn't say that sex is bad. It says that sex is really good in marriage. This is a very similar topic. Let me show where the Bible says that alcohol is not bad. You're already there in Proverbs 31, the very next verse, after he just said it's not for you, O Lemuel, or whatever your name is. Verse 6, look at what it says. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Wait, okay, time out. Okay, so you just said that alcohol was dangerous and as a king, you should be very careful with it. And then you turn around and say, listen, when people are suffering, you need to give this to them. Did, did the Bible just tell kings to cause people who are suffering to sin? The answer is no. But, but all of a sudden you see something here. Hey, maybe this topic's not as simple as we originally thought that maybe into this, I'm looking at it and it's, it's sitting there saying, man, why would he say that? Let me, let me show you the places, just a few of them, where the Bible seems to say that wine is a good thing. Y'all okay? <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's a yes or a no. Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, talking about the good things that God does for people. Psalm 104, verse 14, he says this, God, you caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Verse 15, why does he do this? That he might bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Like, listen, it says, God, you, you provide all these good things so that people can have food, so that man can have wine to make him happy, and oil to make his face shine. I don't know why you put oil on your face, but apparently that's what you do. And bread to strengthen man's heart. Listen, that doesn't sound like wine is a bad thing in that verse. Uh, unless you want to redefine it and make it be grape juice. But then all the other verses that mention wine don't make any sense. Grape juice is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived by grape juice is not wine, is not wise. Does that make sense? It's not for you, O king, to drink grape juice. Give it to people who are suffering. I don't get to retranslate the word because it makes me uncomfortable. It means wine. It's talking about an alcoholic beverage. It may not be as alcoholic as our wine but it's still alcoholic. Proverbs chapter three, verses nine and 10. Look at these verses. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats 
will be bursting with grape juice. Welch's, to be specific. Now that, listen, I know, I'm, I know I'm poking fun. I'm trying to relieve the stress here a little bit. It, you're, they'll be bursting with wine. Goodness, this does not feel Baptist. But there's more. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Listen, Moses is writing, he's giving instructions to the people of Israel, saying when you get into the land, you need to make sure that when you, when you get your first fruits, every year when you grab the harvest and you get your first fruits, you need to bring the first fruits, a tithe of it, and you need to give it as an offering to God. And look at what he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Look at verse 24. And he's saying, listen, and if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far. In other words, if you live too far away from Jerusalem, like it's going to take you like eight days to get there, and you can't carry all this produce from your field back to Jerusalem. It's just too much and too difficult. What are you supposed to do? Verse 25, then you shall turn it into money. Go sell it and get the cash and bind up the money in your hand. Don't spend it on, you know, take that money and go to the place. You go to Jerusalem that the Lord your God chooses. And look at what he says to do with the money. And spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Now I'm nervous. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Let me tell you what he just said. You get the first fruit, you're supposed to give a tithe to God, but it's too far away. Here's what I need you to do. You need to go sell it, get the cash. You take your family, you go to Jerusalem, and you buy a huge feast with wine and strong drink, and you guys enjoy it as an act of worship to God. Oh, man, I got an amen on that one. I, was, I thought I was going to get a, you need to stop it. <laughs> Woo. Guys, I got more problems. That's all Old Testament. John chapter 4, what am I supposed to do with Jesus at the wedding at Cana? Like, am I supposed to make that grape juice? It's, it's not grape juice. He made wine. Not as alcoholic as our wine. Did some research. Uh, talk, or not talk. I did some research. Probably one of the best... Uh, scholars in the Gospel of John that we have right now in the U.S. And his research, we don't know exactly what type, how alcoholic the wine of Jesus was, but we know the wine of that time was not as alcoholic as, as the wine today. Most think it's probably similar to the same alcoholic content of maybe a beer or a little bit less. Um, had to do a lot of research on that one to kind of figure it out. And, and, and here's the deal. Here's what I need to, under, to, to understand. I don't know why Paul would give the command not to be drunk with wine if it wasn't alcoholic and if you actually couldn't get drunk off of it. This is a fight he has with the church in Corinth. They're getting together, having a church potluck, and people are getting drunk at the church potluck, and he is livid about it. Imagine that little church party. Got drunk people at the church party. Like, oh, man, like deacons are drunk at the church party. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Like, that doesn't happen with Welch's. I, can we, unless we party totally wrong. I don't even know. Like, guys, the Bible's teaching is really clear about this. It, it's clear. It says that it's a sin to get drunk. 
It says that it's dangerous. And at the same time, it doesn't say that drinking is sin. It actually seems to say that part of it is a gift from God. That people have taken and twisted to their own harm and destruction. Listen, I don't want to spend my whole time, I'm not going to go through 40 more verses about what the Bible says about alcohol. I think I've shown you enough to make it clear what the Bible says. Here's the question I'm asking us. So how are we supposed to interact with each other about this topic? Um, Romans chapter 14. That's what I want to spend time fleshing out this morning. So if you please turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to walk through this chapter. Um, Let me tell you the situation as you turn to Romans chapter 14 in your Bible. Paul's writing to the Roman church. And this church is, has a mixture of people. They're Jews and Gentiles. or people who only worshiped one God and never ate bacon. And people who visited cult prostitutes and worshiped idols, tons of idols, and always ate bacon. It, it's full of people who drank alcohol and people who didn't drink alcohol. It's full of people who considered the Sabbath a very, very holy day. And people who considered every day just the same. And they're all mixed into one church. And in Romans chapter 14, Paul begins to address this topic of how should all these people who have different views about what they should eat, what they should drink, and what days are special, how should they all hang out together? Right? Listen, just in case you're wondering, I'm going to take this discussion about meat and I'm applying it to the issue of alcohol. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. says this. Uh, Sorry, before I go down, I need to give one note. You're going to see two groups of people that Paul divides them into. He divides them into the weak and the strong. That's not mature and immature. This is about your conscience. Weak conscience, strong conscience, okay? Like that's that's the two things. It's not about maturity, immaturity. You can be mature and be on either side of this. You can be immature and be on either side of weak or strong. All right? This This is about where your conscience is at, all right? And the weak person, that's the person who only eats vegetables. They don't drink wine. They're very committed to certain days being more holy. The strong person, they're the ones that eat meat and bacon and pork, which is awesome. They drink wine. They consider all the days the same. Here's the note I want you to have. The weak ones are the more conservative ones. They have the stricter guidelines. Please don't be offended by that. I didn't call you that. Paul did. All right. Here's his instruction to these people who are struggling with, can I eat meat or not? Chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Listen, you want them in. They're part of the body. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't bring them in with the plan, I'm going to change how you think about this, and I'm going to argue you to death and beat you over the head with with the verses about grace. You welcome them in. That's good. We need to hear that. That's important. And then he just describes you. Verse 2 says that one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. All right, like if you're a vegetarian, you are a weak person. You need to know that right out of the gate. <laughs> so, sorry, that was a, let me keep moving on. Verse three, 
That gives instructions, right? The weak is the vegetarian. The strong is the meat eater who loves bacon. Bacon wrapped pork chops. That's what this dude loves. And he's saying, listen, I know you love your pork chops. I need you to love your brother and sister. Welcome them in, but not to fight, not to argue about this. That's not why the church exists. I want you to welcome them in. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. That word despise basically means I think you're stupid. You need to hear this. If, If you're the strong person, If you're the person that feels like you have more freedom not to sin, but to enjoy the freedom that God's given you, the command to you is not to try to change the other people and not to look at them and think they're stupid. There's another command. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So for the one who, do, who doesn't eat meat, when they find out the people in the church eat meat, their job is not to think they're stupid. Their job is not to think they're sinful. Do you hear that? So let me change that to alcohol. All right. So in other words, if you drink beer, your job is not to think that everyone else who drinks beer is an idiot. And if you don't drink beer, your job is not to think that everyone who drinks beer is sinful. Don't despise don't judge. Man, I'm, I'm praying that I'm applying this right. If, if you don't agree with this, you need to go and study Romans 14 and we can hack through all this. I would love to spend as much time as you want. Because look at verse 5. Let me skip down here. So don't, don't despise, don't judge. It says, One person esteems a day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. One of you loves the Sabbath. The rest of you, you just don't care. They're all the same to you. Every day is God's day. Saturday doesn't matter, or Sunday, depending on that discussion. Look what he says here in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Oh, my goodness. Hey, listen, he just said, don't judge, don't be despised. I thought Paul would say, each one should just really not care. That's not what he said. Look what he said. He says, you should be fully convinced in your own mind. Doesn't that seem like that's going to cause more fighting, not less? More judging, not less. More despising, not less. Why would Paul say be fully convinced in your own mind? What is he saying there? I'm going to flush it out in this passage, but let me tell you the things I think he's saying what you need to be fully convinced about. First of all, you need to be fully convinced what the Bible says. In other words, Does the Bible say this is sin or not? You have to be fully convinced that that's what it says. You have to be fully convinced where your conscience is at. You've got to know what your heart can handle. You've also got to know and be fully convinced what the best way for you to act is. In other words, what does the Bible say? What does my conscience say? What's the best way for me and my family to live? Let me show you that. Look at verse 6. He's saying, listen, you need to be fully convinced. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Here's what I'm convinced. The person is saying, listen, this person who feels like the Sabbath is a very, very special day, like more than all the rest, that you got to be convinced that that person is not sinning by following the Sabbath, that they're actually worshiping God by saying, listen, I'm going to honor this Sabbath as an act of worship to you. Not an act of legalism to make you happy, but an act of worship and adoration just because I love you and I'm going to give you a day. 
You've got to be convinced it's not sin for him to do that. And you've got to be convinced that he can do that and worship God while he does it. Then it says this, the one who eats. If you eat meat, you don't abstain from pork or meat or whatever. You eat in honor of the Lord. It's not sin for you to eat the bacon. And I'm convinced by the Bible it's not sin for you to eat the bacon. I'm convinced that you can actually eat the bacon and worship Jesus. Can I get an amen from the men in the room? All right, that's what I'm talking about. Bacon, if I can't get you to amen bacon, I got work to do. I mean, good grief. Like he's sitting here saying, listen, if you eat, you can actually eat this and enjoy that freedom. And it's an act of worship to God. You have to be convinced that that's actually possible and that's what the word says. While the one who abstains, who doesn't eat the bacon, that only eats the vegetables, that the vegetarians who love broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and asparagus, I don't know how, but you can only eat vegetables. You can only eat vegetables. And you can stay away from all the meat all the time for your whole life. And you can do that as an act of worship to God. You see that in that verse there? That this is what you're convinced of. You're convinced about the, what the Bible says, not your opinion of what the Bible says, what the Bible actually says. And then you're convinced of this. If the Bible doesn't say it's good or doesn't say it's bad, doesn't say it's sinful, doesn't say that, then I'm convinced that you can participate and not sin and you can worship God or you can abstain and not sin and worship God. You see why I would apply this to alcohol? Look at what he says here in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies. To Our life is not about us. Your entire life is about God and worshiping him. Look at verse 10. He's going to bring it up again. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see, he says it again. You don't judge each other. You don't despise each other. You will all personally stand before God. Now, the following verses lay out a thing that I'm going to call, fleshing out a little bit more, I'm going to call it the way of love. Like, it's not just about not judging and not despising. That's part of the way of love. But Paul is going to lay out for here what love fleshed out for the people next to you actually looks like when it comes to issues that we disagree on that the Bible is clear you're free to do or you're free to not do. Verse 13, what does love look like? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Don't judge each other, but rather, instead of judging, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Ooh, <laughs> now it turns. So here's what the way of love looks like. I'm not going to judge you if you're not sinning and disobeying God's word. I'm not going to call sin what God doesn't call sin. You get drunk, different conversation. But, but this, I'm committed to not judging you, to not dis, despising one another. Not saying you're stupid, not saying you're sinful. But I'm also committed to you and your walk with God, and I'm committed to, to do whatever it takes to keep you from stumbling. I don't want to throw trip hazards in your way to cause you to stumble. How, what are ways we can cause people to stumble? Let me lay out a few for you. 
one of the ways you can cause someone to stumble is, say, for example, um, someone's a recovered alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. Does you know how you cause that dude to stumble? Go get dinner, drink a beer in front of him. What, what, what have you done? So you don't, we don't do that to one another, not for the sake of our freedom. I'm saying, I don't want you tripping and stumbling into sin. So when we're around, I ain't doing it. Does that sound like love to you? Like, like if it was your family member who was a recovering alcoholic or a recovered alcoholic, and you found out that you had these people at church that were offering them alcohol, wouldn't you feel unloved by that person? But wouldn't you be so happy to say, no, that's gone because we don't want you to stumble. That's a big deal. That's an act of love, not an act of legalism, but an act of love and care and concern. I think it's interesting to me, it's also followed by, I'm not going to judge you. Let me tell you what that looks like. You go to Outback or Carabas, and you see a church family there, and they have a glass of wine with their meal. They're not trying to cause you to stumble. They're by themselves having a meal. Are you going to walk in and judge them? No. The command is no. They're at their home. They're doing their thing. They're at their restaurant with their family doing their thing, and you see them with wine, you don't judge them. They're staggering drunk. Now we're going to have a conversation. But they have a glass of wine with their meal. You, we're not going to judge for that. That's, God hasn't judged that sinful, and neither should we. And at the same time as love, I'm trying to keep the people from stumbling. So I'm not going to sit there and take it in front of someone who has a bad past with alcohol or a current struggle with alcohol. Or maybe their family was just insane, and they can't be around it. Maybe they don't have an issue. Maybe they've, just been, they've suffered from the issues of it. Man, don't put alcohol around that person. That's what it looks like to cause them to stumble. They're going to sit there and say, listen, you're making me live up all my past, and it's hard for me to be around this, and I'm uncomfortable. And I say, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to be around, so I'm ditching this so you can be with me. Do you see how much love is written into this passage for one another? How much are there and saying, I don't, I'm not going to hold on to my rights. I'm not going to hold on to my opinions. I'm going to hold on to love because I want to be in relationship with you. And I want you to be healthy and whole and connected to Jesus. There's more. He's going to about not, not causing them to violate their conscience. We'll get to that. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says this, I know and persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. This is crazy. He's saying, listen, maybe you were brought up and you could just never be around that. And now all of a sudden you think it's unclean. You can't drink it. If you drink it, you're violating your conscience and that becomes sin. Maybe you didn't have a bad background. Maybe you don't have addiction. But your conscience is tender. And it's wound up around this and you can't get past it. Then what we do as brothers and sisters, when you're in small group together or dinner with that church member, you don't flaunt that in front of them and try to encourage them to violate their conscience. I'm hoping this is helpful. I don't, I don't, I don't know. You, you may be raging angry right now. I want you to hear what love looks like when the commands of God are clear. 
Verse 15 says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Jesus died for that person. And we're not going to take our freedoms and use that to thrash one another. Jesus also died for that other person. And we're not going to steal their freedoms away and thrash them for it. You see the two-way streak this works? It says this amazing thing down in verse um, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's, the, the church isn't about what you eat and what you drink. It's about how you relate to one another. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, don't let the church get combative and mean and tear each other down about this topic. Man, Paul, it's like he looked into the future. <laughs> Verse 21, he says a few more things. I want, I want you to see this. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, it's loving for you to give up some of your freedom for the good of others. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because eating is not from faith. In other words, if you've got doubts, don't participate in this. Just abstain. So, so what does this look like? That's all like heady theory. Let me, let me give some real-world practical examples for us as a church. And I'm going to start with the silly. Let's, let's just pretend that my brother, Khalil, is lactose intolerant. And I mean, like, it's a bad type of lactose intolerant. Like, it's going to wreck his family. It's going to, you know, if he eats cheese, everyone's in trouble, right? Let's just pretend that he's lactose intolerant. And my brother wants to come and hang out. I love my brother. He's insane. But I love him, and I want to be with him. And here's what I'm not going to do. For the sake of his family, I'm not going to serve cheese pizza. Well, we're going to have something without cheese. I'm not even going to let it. I don't, want to, I don't need to be tempted to get any type of lactose and wreck his family. I just don't. And I know that's a silly example. But I, that's what I, I'm not going to serve him cheese pizza. Why? Because I love him. I may love pizza. But on the nights that I'm going to hang out with my brother, we ain't doing pizza. Right? Are y'all following this? Or say my sister Sabrina. Say she went crazy vegetarian. I mean, we're talking strict. The only three things that she ever eats with her home is broccoli, cauliflower, and asparagus. Listen, let me tell you what's going to happen. If she invites me over for dinner and we go to her house and we're hanging out, I am not going to stay away from her house because all she eats is broccoli, cauliflower, and asparagus. I'm going to go to her house and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have any steak. I'm not going to have any Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. I'm not going to have any of that stuff. I'm going to have broccoli, cauliflower, and asparagus. And it doesn't matter to me because I love my family and I want to be with them. And I will gladly, when we're together, give up steak and hamburgers and french fries. Might be good for me to give up some french fries. Okay, right? That's, I don't know how else to help us understand that. So, so here's the call, the practical steps. I want you to be wise and hate sin. The things that God declared. Don't let anyone else define sin differently than what God defines it. I want us to hate sin. I want you to hate what alcoholism does to people. I want you to hate drunkenness. 
I want you to hate it. I want you to be wise about the dangers that you can get sucked into things. You need to know your own propensities. We've got to be that way. I want us to be loving. What does loving look like? That means you're going to have to have awkward conversations with one another. The most awkward conversations I have are with the people I love the most. Right? I mean, the conversations that me and my wife would have, I would not have with any of you. They're awkward. But we're in a loving relationship, so we talk about everything. You, you want to know how to be loving? That means here's what it's going to look like for you. you. You go to your home, and you're free not to sin, but you have alcohol in your fridge. Like, we're not going to go and open up your fridge and judge you because you've got it in there. Right? Can we agree on that? I don't want you having to hide stuff and sneak around and tiptoe. But also, if you're over to the house and I don't know your story, I'm not offering you alcohol. That's the commitment. That's what love looks like. But as you learn their story, you might find out they're great and maybe y'all can have a glass of wine together. I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud at a Baptist church. I'm about to get... Listen, that's what love looks like, that you don't offer it. If you find out there's any type of addiction, it's gone. Any type of recovery, any type of bad experience, any type of sensitive conscience, you don't do it in front of them. You don't despise them and think they're stupid. Say, okay, you're following Jesus. You can love Jesus and abstain for your whole life, and that's awesome. We don't have to agree on how to flesh this out. We agree that Jesus is worth it, and we want to be together. Church, I think that matters. We don't want to cause stumbling. We don't want to steal freedom. We don't want to rub people's noses in it. We don't want to judge. We want to love. Be wise and hate sin. Be loving. I mean, like, really, really loving. I'm going to guide us in a time of response for this. Um, I'm going to ask Josh to come up. We're going to play some music. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And here's here's how I'm going to guide us in response. Number one. Listen, I I don't know what's in your life, but I want to walk us through some moments of repentance of something God might have called you to repent of. Listen, maybe you have an issue with getting drunk. Or maybe it's underage drinking, which would also be considered sin because it's disobedience. Listen, I want to call you to repent of that sin. Although God said this is a good thing and he also said it's a dangerous thing. If you've been getting drunk or if you've been doing underage drinking, you need to repent. Listen, maybe the thing that you've been guilty of is you've been judging. Maybe you didn't know the word, I don't know, but I feel like now you know it. Listen, if you've been judging other people in the way that he says not to in Romans 14, if you've been judging people for doing something that God said was okay and you've been judging them as sinful, I want you to repent. Maybe you've been despising. Maybe you've been enjoying your freedom, but you've considered everyone else to be stupid because they don't know. Listen, you've been considering everyone else stupid. Would, would you repent?
also want to remind you not just to repent of sin, but would you ask God to give be make us a church that gives us a heart of love for one another? Maybe some of you've heard about this type of radical love and acceptance we're talking about that type of religion, it doesn't sound as constricting as you feel like you've heard before, but it sounds so insane talking about that what matters most is not your freedom, it matters love because Jesus died for these people. He loves these people and that enables us to love one another. I, I just want to encourage you, you may have been in church your whole life, uh, you need to hear the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for every man, woman, and child, that we were broken and distant and far removed and he died so that he could bring us close. He took all of our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion. He took it on himself and he paid the price. And the Bible says he died and he came back to life three days later and he offers us this thing. He says, you can have relationship. I can clean you and make you whole and give you a new heart and make you a part of my family. But all you gotta do is you don't gotta work for it. You don't gotta clean yourself up. You gotta do one thing. You trust in the work of Jesus on the cross and you ask him to save you. If you're willing to your sin and run to Jesus, turn from trusting in yourself and run to trusting in only him and his work. Listen, I want to encourage you to do that today and ask him either in your seat to save you and to make you his son or daughter. Heavenly Father, God, you, uh, you see every heart in this room. God, you see the dangers and the pitfalls. You see the struggles and the weaknesses. You see mine and all. You see us all clearly and you still loved us. And God, I pray for us as a church. God, I'm asking that you would help us to see the word clearly. Protect us from ripping your people apart because of food and drink. And make us a people that love one another well. God, protect us from sin. Make us a a family that loves one another enough to give up our freedoms and loves one another enough to despise. God, help us to love one another well. And I pray that all in Jesus' name.